Hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Bill Stafiri. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you after this service. Uh, uh, so please uh, stop by, come up front. Uh, I'd love to get a chance to meet you personally. I want us to pray as we begin. Uh, uh, we, uh, uh, last week was just a crazy week for us. It was a very hard week. We lost five people in our church family uh, that went home to be with the Lord. Uh, our friend Ray Sheeks, who's been the leader of our board, uh, went home to be with the Lord. He's been fighting cancer for a year. And so uh, I want to pray. We're going to have a service for him on Sunday, uh, next Sunday, or I'm sorry, next Saturday at 10 a.m. and uh, reception afterwards. But let's pray for, for Ray's family right now. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we're going to uh, talk about our hope, and we're going to talk about what you've done. And so in the midst of this, we don't, we don't have to be overwhelmed by this, um, but we certainly are saddened by it. Uh, Ray is our friend and our partner, a tremendous servant in this church, uh, and it's a huge loss to us, uh, but we know uh, our hearts go out now to his family, and we pray for them, that you strengthen them uh, with our faith and hope and our comfort. Um, Lord, help us be the church in all the unique ways that we serve that way uh, to their family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in week two of a series that we're doing. Uh, we're looking at uh, our identity and talking about uh, who we are in Christ. And it's interesting, I began to think as we're thinking about this week uh, of what it means to be saved. Uh, I, this, recently, Kim and I were on vacation with our daughter, and we were going to go snorkeling. And uh, Rebecca actually was going to get to do this thing called snuba, where you're kind of attached to a tank and you're under the water, and I was going to snorkel over her. And so we're, we're getting trained, and they're showing us how it all works, and we're standing, uh, we're, we're, we're standing in this area, and there's like this uh, activities hut in front of us, and then uh, really about, I don't know, uh, 30 yards away is the ocean, and there's got to be 50 people snorkeling in this, this little uh, uh, pool by Black Rock in, in Maui, and we're standing there, and as we're, we're uh, uh, training and doing everything, we start to hear this kind of weird noise, this kind of squeal or scream or something. We can't tell what it is. Is it like this Hawaiian bird or what is, what's going on? And then as we listen, we can kind of see people coming out on their balconies and we can tell someone's yelling, help, help, help. And so I, I kind of take a step out and I look and, at past the, uh, the little hut and I can see uh, some people pulling a body out of the ocean. Uh, a man had drowned. In the midst of these 50 people snorkeling in this kind of uh, pool of water, a man had drowned right in the midst of them. And I, I, so I look and I tell our guy, Tim, I say, hey, they're pulling a body out of the water. And he, like a bolt of lightning, he just runs from us. He runs straight down. And they pull the body up and he begins to uh, administer CPR to the man. Uh, his assistant comes down. They have a defibrillator and, and he's chest compressions. They, they're attaching everything. Okay, clear. <clears throat> Shock the, the man. Nothing. I mean, this man has drowned. He's dead. There's no life in him at all. No pulse. Nothing. And so uh, Tim... He just keeps, the machine says, chest compressions. He just keeps doing chest compressions. It's charging back up. They, they clear everyone. Uh, clear. <clears throat> Nothing. Chest compressions. He's doing chest compressions, chest compressions, chest compressions. And finally, again, it says, clear. <clears throat> all of a sudden, with a big cough, this, all this water and blood <clears throat> come out of this guy's mouth. And this guy, he's revived. He comes back uh, from, from, uh, from being dead. He's, I mean, his heart starts beating again. He's barely breathing. His wife is, uh, obviously, as you can imagine, she's just hysterical on the beach. 
And, and so Kim is clearing people away, and, and the EMTs are getting there, and they finally get there in time. They get oxygen all hooked up. They get them on a cart, get them away. And Tim kind of walks back to me, and I'm like watching this. I'm thinking, that was just amazing. Like, and, and he looks at me and goes, well, do you still want to go snorkeling? And I, I'm like, do you still want to go snorkeling? Like, that was incredible. And I, I, I'm thinking for a, a moment, like, here's this... What an amazing transformation in this moment. Here's this man, dead, helpless. There is nothing he can do for himself but lay there motionless, lifeless on the beach. He was dead. And then a rescuer ran in and came over him. And brought him back. Tim, this man who, who was just about to, all he was, his plan for the day was to take a snorkeling. But instead, Tim enters in and saves this man, man's life. And, and I began to think about this. This is so much what we're going to see today in the passage. That what we're going to see today is that uh, as we continue through that in Christ, we, we have been saved. We are saved people. And we're trying to think through this idea, uh, idea of identity, that we who were dead have been saved. And we now lived as rescued people. Our identity is, is in being a rescued person, a saved person. And this, this month, what we're trying to understand as we look at this I am phrase is, who are we in Christ? And this phrase is very important because in the book of, of Ephesians, which we're, we're going through during this month, that we see this phrase, in him in whom, in Christ, 36 different times. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses it over 160 times in all his writings. But it, it speaks about your position. It speaks about who you are because you're in relationship. And it redefines you. It re-identifies you. All of a sudden, you get to push back circumstances. You get to push back labels. You get to push back things that you've told yourself or others have told you. And now you get to see yourself in the way that God sees you. He sees you for who you are in Christ. And it's, uh, it's so interesting. As I, I was sharing last week, I want to share with you again. In these first three weeks, it's, it's quite remarkable because in these first three chapters, there is nothing you're told to do. There, I know sometimes you think that the Bible is all about telling you what to do and not to do, a list of behaviors and, and things to avoid, all that kind of stuff. In these first three chapters, it doesn't tell you anything about what to do. It only tells you what has been done for you. In fact, if there's any command, if there's anything to do, it's to remember it's to remember, it's to be mindful, it's to be thoughtful of what it is that God has done. See, that's what the gospel is, as we'll see. It's not about what we do, it's about what God has done for us. So remember, he says, he's gonna, you're going to have this sense where he's going to keep saying, I want you to remember where you've been. I want you to remember what's been done. I want to remember what he's doing. Remember this great plan from eternity past, this love that's existed for you since before the foundation of the world. Remember this presence of God in your life now. And this power of God in your life now. Be mindful. of Live in that. Let it, let it sink deep in your heart. Remember this great plan that he's playing out. And now you are part of this plan. Your life has purpose in this plan. 
See, this will help us understand. What I want you to see today is I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Here's our big idea. If you want to write it down, we need to remember that in Christ we are saved. We are saved. And I want to invite you to remember that. To remember what God did to rescue you. To save you. See, in this letter, we're going to focus on three things in this part of the letter. You're going to see what he has saved you from. Uh, in whom you've been saved by. Who, who, who was it that saved you? How was that rescue plan put in place? Who, who put that rescue plan in place? And now what you're saved for. And so if we'll look for those things, save from, save by, save for, we'll, we'll understand. And it's so important that we, we look at these things, not so that you have a lot of information, but, but so that these things can, can dwell in your heart. Because see, if you understand what you've been saved from, you, there, there's a peace that comes in your life. You know, as we've been wrestling through all these people that have gone to be with the Lord, we're going to see you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear judgment. You know what it's like to live life when you don't fear death, when you don't fear judgment, and you don't fear uh, being controlled by this world any longer? There's a peace that takes over your life, and your friends look at you and just go, oh, you Christians, and you're just, you're, you guys don't. No, no, they, they can't understand it, but you, there's a calm, there's a peace that's taken over your heart because you're living in that, you're remembering that, you're letting that dwell in your heart. When you see this rescue plan in place. And you see and you, and you remember what it is that God's done for you. And you realize you had nothing to do with it. Your heart is just filled with joy and it's filled with thankfulness. When you see what it is that God is saving you for, you have a renewed sense of purpose. You realize you are not just living in this world and in this life. You're not just passing the days, but every day has purpose. And you are a part of God's mission, part, part of God's plan. And so I want us to see that today. So let me invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at uh, part of his, his uh, teaching last week in chapter 1. We're encouraging you to read through. We can't, we're not going to have time to go through every single uh, verse in this. But we're hitting some of these great identity uh, teachings. Ephesians 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 10. It'll be up on the screens if you need it. But I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, or you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1,174. And I, I guess, what I, again, this is it's so amazing what you're about to see here. Because you've got to understand what it is that Paul is praying. Why he wants you to get this. Uh, if you look back just a couple verses, I'll actually put it here on the screen. Uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Paul's describing his prayer for this church. And I think it's fair to say it would be his prayer for our church as well. But he says this phrase. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, this song we just sung, this great Father, I'm praying to him that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? Why am I praying that God would just give you a, a spirit of wisdom, that, uh, through his spirit, give you wisdom, reveal things to you? Because I'm praying that you will know God better. That you will know him, Father, Son, Spirit. You will know 
him better. In fact, it goes on, uh, but he says, I want you to know this glorious father. I want you to have anticipation in your heart. I want you to have expectation in your heart of the great inheritance he has for us. I want you to know about the power that comes because his spirit now dwells in you. The spirit, this, this, in, this incomparable power that is now in your life. I want you to know that that is in your life. And I want you to live in that. This is what he's praying for. And, and notice why he's praying this. Let's look. Chapter 2, verse 1. Why is he praying this prayer for us? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, uh, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised, him, uh, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in, or, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let's see the first thing. He says, remember. Remember what you have been saved from. Remember what you have been saved from. In these first three verses... Look, the, the, the picture painted in the first three verses is not a pretty picture, is it? It says that you were dead. I want you to remember, you were dead. And that, this isn't like Princess Bride, mostly dead. You know, and what Max the Magician's like pumping air into you. He's not saying you were mostly dead. He says you were dead. How? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And the Bible's very clear, Romans 3, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, this great passage of the Messiah, uh, we see that all of us have gone astray. Uh, and, and, and notice that he's not, he's not pointing the finger at them. He's, saying, he's using we language. We are in this. In fact, if, if John says this, if any of us thinks that we haven't sinned, that we don't sin, we're liars. We're fooling ourselves. Because God says that we have. And so notice the picture. The picture is not a good picture. Uh, you see, a trespass uh, is a, a false step. It is it's moving or crossing a, a, a line, a boundary you know you shouldn't have done. Okay? It's deviating off the right path. But a sin is missing the mark. It's falling short of a standard. So you put these two together. When, he, when, when you're using trespasses and sin, it is all-encompassing. It is the things we've done and failed to do. It is the things that we, the boundary lines we've crossed and, and the, the things we know, uh, the things that we didn't realize, it, it is all encompassing. And before God, we realize we are rebels, we are failures, we are dead, alienated from life with him. 
Now, there's a big difference between being sick and dead. If you're sick, you can contribute, you can do something, you can, you can, uh, you can uh, work towards your recovery. But if you are dead, it requires someone else to bring you back to life. And see, this is a problem because many people only think they're sick. They only think they need a little bit of God, a little bit of church, a little bit of good stuff. A little, I, I just need to be a little bit better. A little, I need to work a little harder, be a little nicer, do more stuff that would kind of help my cause, and it will make me healthier. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, you were dead. That sin makes us dead. But not only were you set, uh, dead, he says, remember this. Remember, you were enslaved. You were, you were being controlled. You were being mastered. You see this in verses 2 and 3. Because he says, you, were, you followed the ways of the world. And you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's kind of a, a way of talking about the, our enemy, the devil, and the, and the unique way in which he kind of controls things in this time and place. He says, uh, you follow the desires of our sinful nature. Now that word follow is really a stronger word than, than the way we think of follow. It, it is to be mastered by something. It is to be controlled by something. And we see that our sinful nature, our, our selfishness, it, 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 it leads us, it controls us, it masters us. Um, Martin Luther once said, said it this way. He said, uh, the way he described it, he said, it, it, we, we are turned in on ourselves. Isn't that a good way of saying it? Kind of, and you understand, right? We are all, we realize this. We are, so, we are self-centered. We are selfish by nature. We are turned in on ourselves. And the whole world works that way. And the enemy works that way. Because he only came to steal and kill and destroy everything. We are turned in on ourselves. And mastered by our own self-centeredness. Uh, one pastor was uh, talking with a guy in his church. And this guy was telling the story that I thought was hilarious. He said, he was describing his four-year-old daughter. And he was saying, Pastor, I've got this daughter. She's four years old. But she, she cute as can be, but she is so strong-willed. He says, let me give you an example. He says, uh, uh, she, she was, uh, we got her a tricycle. and She's been riding out in front of the house. My wife says, to, she kind of kept going beyond the boundaries. And so my wife comes out and says to her, says to my daughter, she says, look, between that tree and the driveway, you can ride anywhere you want in this space. But if you go outside this boundary between these two things, I'm going to come out and I'm going to give you a spanking. She goes, you see that window? I'm going in the house, but I'm going to be looking out that window. If you go outside this boundary, if you go outside from here to here, if you go outside this boundary, I'm coming out, I'm going to give you a spanking. He said, you know what my daughter said to, to my wife? My daughter looked at my wife. She stuck her hip out and said, you better spank me now because I got places to go. <laughs> and and isn't, that, isn't that the case? Isn't that us? Right? Isn't that our heart? That we want to say, hey, look, you might as well punish me now because I've got places to go. I am turned in on myself, left to myself, I will turn in on myself. And he says this, he says, it, if you think that's bad enough, it's one thing to, to be kind of dead man walking. It's another thing to be enslaved and mastered and controlled. But it only gets worse in verse 3 that we then are by nature deserving of wrath. 
It's almost as if it makes sense. He says, I want you to remember something. Not only were you dead and, and, and controlled and enslaved, but you know this, right? You deserved wrath. You deserved punishment for that. You deserved a just God, a fair God to say, look, that must be punished. And he says, that's who we were. You were destined for these things. But see, here's the, here's the problem with this. You and I have kind of lost sight of it. Um, and and our, certainly our, our world has lost sight of it because it, it is so prevalent. It's just where it is. And because of this, th- th- we've lost sight. There's, there's so much corruption. The corruption is so universal. And it, because it affects everyone and everywhere, and we see the, uh, everything uh, uh, just crumbling, we, we've just become used to it. And so whether it's injustice or poverty or violence or abuse or apathy, we've just become used to it. But God never is used to it. He never can allow himself just to be used to it. He cannot say, well, that's just okay. That's just the way it is. That's just how people are going to be. God never can say that. And you know how you know that? Look at verse 4. Because it says, but God... He interrupts this flow. As bad as it is, he interrupts it. He says, look how bad it's going. But God, God who is, and notice he has to use four different words, four different words to describe what it is God is doing. And here's why he does it. See, in in our world, if we want to emphasize something, maybe you you, uh, put it in all caps or bold or underline, you know, like if you're going to send a text and you want to really like, emphasize how, how important this is. You type it in all caps. Now, some of you just need to turn your all caps off and your grandson can teach you how to do that. But, um, uh, you, you know, you're like, you're, you, know I, you do something to show emphasis. In the ancient world, they don't have this in their writing, but what they do have is repetition. And so we see things like, holy, holy, holy is, the God, is our God Almighty, Okay. I want you to see the repetition. In verses 4 to 9, notice there are four words used to describe God at work, his action. Love, mercy, grace, kindness. He doesn't just say God loves you, but he uses four different expressions. It's almost like walking around this beautiful gem and kind of seeing it from different angles. Love, mercy, grace, and kindness. He talks about God's great love, the love in which he loved us. In fact, what we know about this love is this, that, that is his love that is fueling this mission, that is fueling this rescue plan. So he, God isn't the one who comes, does the chest compressions, blows into us, poof, we come to life, and he goes, don't do that again. I got snorkeling to do. Like he does, there, there's, there's nothing in that spirit, is there? What fuels this is not duty. It's not obligation. It is love, love, love. You see this, his great love. He is rich in mercy. Not just that he's merciful, but he's rich in mercy. That his mercy, it, it overflows over the brim of the cup. His grace is immeasurable. He says it's incomparable. He's saying, in essence, uh, what can I use to describe? What what metaphor, what word picture? How can I compare God's grace to something? In essence, he just says, it is is incomparable. There's nothing you can compare it to. Nothing, 
you can compare to God's grace, his kindness. Notice what he says. As he's working in us, our lives are going to, to display this, this, this grace and this kindness. And kindness, I, I, when we think of kindness, we think of kind of being sentimental. Or, uh, it's just kind of, ah, oh, shucks, you know, kind of, oh, he's so nice. He's just sweet. No, this is different. See, his kindness is on display. This word indicates something more than that. It's costly action. It is putting your money where your mouth is. Love, mercy, grace, kindness. All of these are at work. You were dead. You were enslaved. You were, you were going to be condemned. But God, but God, rich in mercy, flowing with love, abundant grace, uh, uh, kindness. All these things are working on our behalf. And what does this, what, what does this love do? I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Look at verse 6. I don't know if you've ever thought this thought before. Verse 6 says this, that he has now raised us with Christ, and he has seated us with Christ. Notice the past tense. It's been done. When you came into faith, he says something was done for you. You were raised and you were seated. Now the conquering king would be brought in and sit at the right hand, the right hand of the throne. And we know when Jesus was, when he raised, when he ascended into heaven, what is it that they see? They look up, they see, oh, I see Jesus. And he's sitting at the right hand of God, right? Uh, you see this in Acts 7. And notice what, the, what Paul's now saying about us. Now we are raised. Now we are seated with Christ. It is a powerful thing in which we see that we are, are loved and accepted and delighted in the same way that God delights in his son. He now loves and accepts and delights in us. It is not literally that you are in heaven, but legally you are, you are placed in that place. This is how he thinks of you. That as when you came, when you believed, when you, when you uh, turned to him in faith, you were united with Christ. And this incredible thing happened. See, what we see is Jesus, this whole rescue plan is that there's this exchange that takes place. There's this, uh, Jesus comes and he takes all, he lives this life that we should have lived. And he takes all of our death and sin and trespass, our wickedness, our our, our self-centeredness. He takes this all upon himself. And and in some sense, where we are self-centered, the most selfless act rescues us. The God of heaven sends his one and only son. The king comes and he fights for us. And he takes us all upon himself. And we are united with him so that we get everything in life that he deserves. And he is so united with us that he takes on everything that our life deserved. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way. God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God treats us according to Christ's righteousness, but God treats Christ according to our sins. And Paul says, this is what it does. It takes away your boasting. You have no ability, no power to boast any longer about yourself. See, we're all boasting about something. See, the ancient world knew this. You, You boast about something when you're afraid. 
And, and so you try to find some sense of calm and peace. Think of Braveheart. Um, and, and so what, what, what are they doing? They're, 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 they're boasting to, to get the, the army all charged up. And so they're saying, you know, they only have 5,000 men, but we have 10,000. Ah! They only have, they're on foot, but we have horses and chariots. Ah! They have tiny little swords. We have huge swords. Ah! Right? All that is boasting, it's raising them, it's giving them something to have confidence in as they go into battle. And notice what Paul is saying this. We, we are all looking to boast in something. There's something we hope will save us. Wealth, power, success, relationships, looks, talent. I don't know what it, what it was for you. But you can look around, you can see everyone is looking for something to save them. Something to say you have value, you have worth. And Paul says from here on out, we, have, we, we boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. The only thing left for us to boast in is Christ and what he has done for us. We, we, we deserved so much worse. And he entered in and rescued us out of his grace and love and mercy and kindness. What is it to be saved? What does it mean? Salvation can be defined maybe this way. John Stott takes a stab at it. He says this, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where only man deserves to be. This is the most amazing thing. He says, I want you to remember You were dead, enslaved, controlled, condemned. But God, but God, but God. Jesus comes and rescues us. Jesus comes and saves us. Remember, I mean, we're coming, getting ready to go into Christmas here soon. And you'll hear the angels say, a savior has been born to you. His name will be Jesus, which means uh, that God will save us. This is who he is. This is why he's come. I love how Max Licato says it. He says, there are many reasons God saves you. To bring glory to himself, to appease his justice, to demonstrate his sovereignty. But one of the sweetest reasons God saved you is because he is fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you're the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If, if he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, but he chose your heart. Our self-centeredness separated us from God and his selflessness His selfless sacrifice saved us. It brought us to God. Love, mercy, grace, kindness. Remember, you were dead. You were enslaved. You were condemned. But God, remember, it is by Jesus. It is by the grace of God you have been saved. You didn't do anything. Even the faith that you show, God gives you the power to exhibit that faith. And some of you, he's calling you even into that right now. You sense it. God's calling you to himself even today. And see, I want you to understand, he's calling you into this relationship and he's calling you into something. I want you to remember what you've been saved for. 
last thing is this. I want you to see what you were saved for. Verse 10. We see this. Think about this. A a, a free gift isn't going to change your life unless you know how big the gift is. How expensive. how How much it costs for someone to give it to you. I want you to think. If you were that guy on the beach. If you were that guy on the beach. And you were rescued. Would you live any differently? If you were rescued, would you live any differently? Notice what verse 10 says. You will live differently when you sense what God has saved you for. F.F. Bruce, uh, a commentator, says this. If we're not saved by good works, we are assuredly saved for good works. And so you see this, this, work, uh, this word there that, uh, uh, that we are his workmanship or uh, his masterpiece, uh, as you see it there. Uh, his handiwork, uh, an incredible artistic term. It's a, it's a term, uh, the Greek word poema. We get the word poem from. It, it, it reveals God's creativeness. Uh, the same creativity that's at work in Genesis 1 or how, how uh, Paul describes it in Romans 1, this creative work of God, what he, how he creates things. And now he's talking about how he's crafted you. Some of you are artists and you understand the time and the design and the, and the thoughtfulness that goes into crafting your art. Now this was a powerful message to give to the Ephesians because many of them, it was an artistic culture, many of them were creating art and the art was to their goddess. Much of the art was to their goddess Artemis. And it's very interesting. In essence, Paul is saying this, you know, you know around you that people make art for their goddess. But Paul's saying this, no, 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 no. Think differently. Remember this. Remember that God has made art out of you. You have purpose. Your life means something. It is a part of what God is doing in this world. And when we begin to identify ourselves in that place, we begin to live in that place, we begin, wherever it is that we work, whatever it is that we do, we begin to recognize the unique way in which God is going to use us in that place, in that work, in that, in that time. You have been saved from, you have been saved by, you have been saved for. As we let these things seep into our heart, I, I want to encourage you. In fact, I'm going to invite the band here on the stage as we spend these last minutes closing. Uh, I want to ask you this question. What do you need to remember today? I want to give you some time for this, but I want, I want you to think this through. What do you need to remember today? Do you need to remember that you were apart from Christ? Have you ever done that? Have you ever kind of thought about what your life would look like if you didn't in that fork in the road moment? If you didn't move towards Christ as he was calling you, as he was giving you the power to do, if you would have ignored him and kept going the way you were going, you ever stop to think what your life might look like and what you would have missed out on? Maybe this morning you just need to be thankful for the sense of what God has saved you from. Maybe there's just a sense of of worship and gratitude of what it is that Jesus has done to save you. Recognizing it's by him that we have been saved. And maybe, again, you just have to, in a fresh way, realize it is not about me. It is not about what I've done. It's not about these things that I've done to think that I somehow now measure up to God. It is by him I've been saved. Or maybe it's this morning you just need to remember, I, there is purpose to my life because I am saved. There is purpose to this. 
I'm a part of God's plan. And so I want to encourage you, because maybe this morning you've never, you're on the outside looking at this, and I hope that you see something. What I hope you see is that the gospel is this, that the gospel is not about what you do, but about what has been done for you. And I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to to, uh, enter into this, that you understand that you are embraced and accepted freely by his love and grace and his kindness. And what you begin to see is he's calling you to himself and what he's in essence inviting you to do is just admit surrender that you, it's not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's, it's in essence kind of throwing your hands in the air and say, I give up, I surrender, and I receive what it is that you have for me. This morning, if you sense that that's God's call in your life, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And maybe what you would just simply do is I'm praying this, in your heart, you would just kind of arms up, kind of say, that's me, Lord. Lord, I need you. It's just, I surrender to this. I receive this today. And so let's bow together. And if this is your heart this morning, I want you just to, to pray these alongside of these words. Just simply say it to, in your heart to the Lord. He's listening. Lord, this is me. This is me. I need you. And so, Lord, I confess to you I've done wrong, that there's brokenness inside of me that I can't fix. And I want your forgiveness and I want to live in your love. And so today I stop comparing myself to other sinners. I I recognize I can never be good enough. I can never give enough. But I, I recognize this morning that Jesus came for me to rescue me, to die for me, to save me from my sin, my pride, my selfishness, my hate, this darkness inside of me. And I recognize that he paid a debt I could never pay to you. And so God, I thank you for that. He died the death I should have died. And I want to receive the life that he would give, that you would give. I receive this free gift of grace. I surrender my heart to you. Look in the quiet of this moment. If that's you this morning, I just want to invite you, as you see many times, there's just, there's, there's moments of posture that help cement in our heart what's going down deep inside internally. And just in the quiet, it's dark in this room. It's just really between you and God. I just would encourage, as we kind of said, this is about you surrendering. It's about surrendering to what he's done. I would just encourage you as just a sign that this is my prayer. This is what I want, that you would just throw your hands in the air, both hands in the air as a sign of surrender and just to say, Lord, I need you. This is me. And if this is you, just place your hands in the air as a sign of surrender to him. This is my prayer. This is my heart. In just a moment, we'll sing. And let these songs be your prayers. Let them capture where your heart is this morning. Let's pray and sing.